if you believe that we are not accidents of time and chance, in other words, that, that we are irreducibly complex, if you believe that we are created in the image and likeness of God, and if you believe, as Jesus did, in heaven and hell and the eternal nature of our souls, then the theme of today's message, I think, is going to interest you immeasurably. For here Jesus describes the one sin that can keep us out of heaven. There is only one sin that can do that, the one and only sin that can never be forgiven. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then there was brought to him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. This would have been an amazing experience if you were there. And uh, demon possession is something I went into much more detail when we were in chapter 9. We're in chapter 12 now. You can go online. They've archived these messages and check it out. Uh, there is a message called The Shepherd's Heart. But let me just say that we are called in the Bible, those who believe in Christ, who trust in Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. We're temples embodied or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the definition of what a believer is. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We cannot be controlled by a demon. We could be tempted from without, but not controlled from within. Verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David that from his loins is going to become a king whose kingdom will never end. Savior of the world. And so son of David became a moniker for the Messiah, for the Christ, for the anointed one, the deliverer. And so they see this incredible miracle. They say, could this be that guy? And of course, the Pharisees hear this. And when they did it, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Anybody have a problem with that? <laughs> Jesus did. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul... I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay, they, they were unable to deny the miracles. So 
they sought to, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, sought to discredit him by assigning his power to Satan. Using pure logic, Jesus proceeds to dismantle such accusations. First of all, Jesus points out that casting out demons by the ruler of the demons produces a divided kingdom and its ultimate collapse. Think of our nation, the United States. Can you imagine for a moment what this land would look like if the Civil War didn't end in 1865? In four years, over 620,000 soldiers died. Want to think about that number for a moment? It took four years for 620,000 soldiers to kill each other. It's been 163 years. What if that was still raging? What would be left of this nation? It would make Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, the devastation there look trifling by comparison. Civil war within Satan's ranks would spell its utter demise. Spurgeon writes, whatever fault the devils have, they uh, are not at strife with each other. That fault is reserved for the servants of a better master. Can we say together, ouch? So, kingdom divided, Jesus points out, it cannot stand. Secondly, he points out that other Jews have prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for demonic deliverance, and God's answer had never been attributed to Satan. Why, why start now? He points that out. You're inconsistent. And finally, the only way to take back what Satan has stolen is if someone stronger than the devil binds him. The power that Jesus displayed, and not in the name of Jehovah, by the way, but by his own authority, only proved that he was greater than Satan, not in league with him. Back in Genesis 3.15, it disclosed that the Messiah, when he came, would crush the head of the serpent. That is Satan. That is, take away his authority. We read that at the very beginning, after the fall. That is what Jesus was doing in a personal way with this demon-possessed man, which is why he claimed that the kingdom of God had come upon them in verse 28. That promised Messiah, the king who would crush the serpent's head, who, that stronger one who would bind the strong man, was there, was, was here at last. The kingdom had come. It's now time for the nation Israel. This long-awaited Holy One was in their presence. That's the way they should have responded, except pride and jealousy drove them to, to say foolish things, accuse them of casting out devils by the devil himself. Now his audience had a choice. They could either come out on the Lord's side 
and gather with him souls into his kingdom? Or they could defy him and scatter by fostering unbelief through their attitude and actions, through their words and deeds. In other words, they could be part of the solution or they could be part of the problem. But I hear someone say, I am neither for him or against him. I have people very near and dear to me that have that attitude. I'm just not going to deal with it and be indifferent. They think that they are avoiding, by avoiding the issue, uh, they are somehow safe. But here Jesus takes away such a false and flimsy hope. There are only two kingdoms in the world. The kingdom of light, referring to those who have come to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, brought them back into fellowship with God through his sacrifice. And then the kingdom of darkness, referring to that domain of those who avoid such knowledge, those who have no king but self. Those are the only two kingdoms. Not to make a deliberate choice to submit to Jesus Christ and walk in his light is to default to an allegiance with the kingdom of darkness. By rejecting Jesus, we are defaulting to that kingdom of darkness. We are in league, as the Pharisees said, with the devil. There's no middle ground. Avoiding the issue is no solution. Now, his audience had a choice. These Pharisees thought they were shining examples of virtue and devotion. But Jesus warns them that they're walking in darkness. They think they're in the light, but they're, they're fooling themselves. They're walking in darkness and approaching if they haven't already committed the unpardonable sin. And that should catch everyone's attention. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. To blaspheme means to vilify or to speak evil of, especially in reference to God. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow! Harsh words from the meek and gentle Savior. On the one hand, I think we can all take comfort in the fact, verse 31, any sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Amen? <laughs> David was an adulterer. King David. He was a murderer. 
And yet God forgave him and remembers him as a man after his own heart, after God's own heart. Abraham lied about Sarah, his wife, repeatedly putting her life at risk. This great man of faith. And yet he's the only one in the Bible referred to as a friend of God. Peter had a problem with cursing. Thief on the cross had a problem with thieving. Taking things that didn't belong to him. And yet God's forgiveness was readily applied to them all. The moment they owned their sin and looked to the Lord to heal them. But what is this blasphemy against the Spirit which is beyond forgiveness? In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God says, My Spirit shall not strive with man forever. Who was his audience in Genesis 6? Anyone familiar with Genesis enough to know that this, these are the antediluvians? Those that lived before the flood. Those that lived with God to their back. Their evil knew no bounds. They had neglected or rejected their creator, doing what seemed right in their own eyes, right? Laws unto themselves. And there came a point where the Lord said, enough. And his spirit ceased to strive with them. That is, he ceased to wrestle with them, to to draw them out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, enough is enough. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, the, the Lord warns Israel, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. He's telling the prophet Hosea, Ephraim, that, that means Fruitful, it's a a name that came to refer to Israel, his chosen people. They've joined themselves to idols. An idol is any person, place, or thing that you put before God. These are his chosen people that have joined themselves with idols. Putting all these things above God, before God, in their hearts and in their minds. He said, leave them alone. Stop wrestling with them. And then he tells Jeremiah, that great prophet, as for you, do not pray for this people. Again, these are the people of God. Meant to be. Do not lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me because I don't hear you. You know, again, I wouldn't be teaching on these verses if, if, if I didn't live by that mandate to teach the whole counsel of God. Where there is prolonged disobedience, there is a harsh reality that God may not always strive with us, may not always wrestle with us to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There comes a point when a person can say no to God for the last time. That's sober. 
He leaves us alone. He removes, in other words, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that draws us to Jesus in the first place. John chapter 12, verse 39 says that those who had seen the miracles of Jesus but continued to harden their hearts could not believe. It didn't say they would not believe. It's an interesting choice of words. It said they could not believe, which underscores the fact that a repeated action creates a groove in our brains. Do you remember when you first learned to type? You had to consciously think of where every key was placed, you know? You had to... Try to remember, okay, that's over there. And slowly, but, but as you kept doing it, what happened? Pretty soon you could do it without funking. I'm sorry, that's a typo. <laughs> without thinking. You know what that's called in sports? Athletes call it muscle memory. They practice repeating a body position and movement until a catcher can just attempt to throw a runner out at second. Or a lineman will drop to a three-point stance without thinking about it. They also call it second nature. They call it a, a, the muscle memory, but it really is just a deep groove that they've made in their brain by repeating an action over and over again. When a person is first presented with the claims of Christ, they're hearing this for the first time, and, and what's going to be their response? They, they have no frame of reference, and so typically they will consider it. They will listen. This is something new, and they'll consider it even if they say no. The next time, they are ready with their answer, no. Each time after that, it gets a little easier to harden their heart until like burning a CD, the groove has left an indelible mark and they cannot believe. That's why 90% of those who say yes to Jesus, do so in their teen years. That's why these retreats are so important. We do all we can to, to make sure our youth have that opportunity to say yes to more of Jesus. Spurgeon put it this way. He that sins against the Holy Spirit may find himself waterlogged by sin, so as to to be no longer able to move his vessel toward the shores of salvation. Nothing hardens like the gospel when it has been long trifled with. Again, a sober reality. You know, some people that grow up in the church and they hear about Jesus all their lives, but secretly in their heart of hearts resist him we call that being inoculated with the gospel. 
You know, you know what inoculation is? They put a little bit of the disease in you to build up a resistance. Nothing hardens like the gospel when it has been long trifled with. We must take the things of God seriously. Our life depends on it. The life of our children, our family, our loved ones depend on it. So again, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is this so-called unpardonable sin? It is this, to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit once and for all. That's the unpardonable sin. In John chapter 16, beginning in verse 8, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See, that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. The third person of the Godhead convicts us of sin. And we should not be offended by that ouch, you know, when our conscience is pricked. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. There is only one sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. There is only one sin for which a person will be judged. There is only one sin that will banish a person forever from all that is good, all that is perfect, all that is lovely. And that is the rejection of God's only provision for sin by hardening our heart toward the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he bears witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. That's it. I, I, you know, it's like Jesus comes to the defense of the Holy Spirit. He says, you can blaspheme me. You can speak evil of me. How, what's, what's the favorite curse word in all of the planet? They don't go around saying, oh, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ. He says, you, that's okay. You can, I can take it, but I will not stand for you. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal my true identity to you and your need for forgiveness through me. He says, that's it. The bridge too far. Our passage concludes with the fact that those who do accept the witness of the Holy Spirit and believe in Christ not only receive eternal life, but a new heart, which brings forth good fruit. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth that which is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you, 
that every careless word that men shall speak, they render, uh, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Again, not my favorite scriptures to preach on. But I vowed to preach the whole counsel of God. So here you have it. Just as every good tree produces good fruit, the heart that is cleansed and made good by the indwelling Spirit of God and then watered with the Word of God is going to bring forth good fruit, that is, good words. They come from our lips, words of life, words that speak about Jesus, words that foster hope, courage, and comfort. We will be judged by our words only as they prove the condition of our hearts. J. Vernon McGee says, what is in the well of the heart will come out through the bucket of the mouth. Therefore, those whose hearts have responded to the love of God in Jesus Christ by opening up and inviting him in as Lord and Savior are justified, says in verse 37, that is acquitted of all charges against them. I love telling that to these kids at Echo Glen. Some of them have murder in their heart for the judge. His gavel came down and says, you're going to jail. You're going to pay the price for your wrongdoing. I said, it's not so with the judge of the universe. You trust in him. His gavel comes down and says, justify. Because your counsel, Jesus Christ, has taken the wages of your sin the penalty of your wrongdoing. You don't have to convince them that, you know, they're bad. They're criminals. They live with that sense of identity. And I try to lift them out of that. And we, when we go, we, it's just a joy to tell them the good news. And many put their trust in him, as we should Always. He says that those who trust in him are justified, acquitted of all charges, while those who repeatedly harden their hearts to every evidence of our creator's power and plan, he says they will be condemned. They will live in outer darkness where there is no hope, no joy, no camaraderie. Where the worm never dies. It's restless. Jesus points out in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, when 
He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In a sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell. God has made this incredible provision for everyone to go to heaven. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. My desire is that all those wicked would turn around, trust in my provision, and live. We send ourselves to hell by hardening our heart and resisting and rejecting his sole provision for sin, which is the Savior. That's why, that's why all the world religions are so such exercises in frustration. They'll tell you how to try to pull yourself up and and be good, and therefore more acceptable to God. But none of them, none of them can provide you a Savior. The onus is on you to work yourself to heaven. And that's futile. Because all have sinned and fallen short. of What God requires is perfection. Glory of God. Yeah, this, is, this is heavy stuff. It's life and death stuff that we deal with. That's what the good news is founded upon. Have you committed the unpardonable sin? Some of you here or watching online may have asked yourself that. A time of discouragement where, where you have just opened your mouth and out came bad fruit. Bad words, bad thoughts, bad deeds. You wonder about your association with God. You wonder maybe, have you burned a groove in your CD, your conscience disc, that is indelible? Well, rest assured, the slightest concern for your salvation proof that you're not there. You have not arrived there yet. And hopefully never. Barclay writes, the sin against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable, unpardonable sin, can be truly described as the loss of all sense of sin. I suspect you wouldn't be here today if you had committed the unpardonable sin if you had seared your conscience so you had lost all sense of sin. If you are without Christ and therefore without hope in this life, I adjure you by the living God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You may think, Yes. <laughs> you might think that you just stumbled in here. 
by chance. You're just watching online, you know, when you're scanning the internet. It's just happen chance. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe you are here because the Holy Spirit has drawn you here today. You would come to that blessed assurance that you belong to him. He belongs to you. That you can freely say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's the great exchange and the great relationship that Christ affords us. On the other hand, if we have opened our hearts to the lover of our souls, then we need to remember whose side we're on. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but for the one who rose again on our behalf. That's challenging, isn't it? Because in America, all the advertisements say, you deserve a break today. You deserve, have it your way. Suck this world like an orange. You deserve it. The gospel says you're no t- you deserve hell. And because of our great God and Savior, you are no longer to live for yourselves. For the one who died and rose again on your behalf. I get chills just remembering that. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but for the one who died and rose again on our behalf so that we could be with him and not against him. To gather with him and not scatter. Again, there's no middle ground. You think, well, I'm just, you know, I'm in a gray area there, just in this kind of Switzerland thing, neutral There is no neutral ground. There's no neutrality with God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. We need to gather and not scatter. Because if we're not gathering, we are scattering. We're a witness to the world, but not a good one. And then also... We are to water that good tree of our new nature. That Remember, I began by saying the Holy Spirit is defined in the Bible as a temple. We, we a believer, defined as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's, and so that we've got this new tree taking root in our lives. And like those horticulture would tell you, it needs water. Plant needs water. And so we water with God's word so that it'll bring forth good fruit, including the fruit of our lips, praise, worship, adoration, thanksgiving, glory, and honor, the truth about God. That's the fruit of our lips. This way, May we gather ourselves and others to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
Amen? That is what we are about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for speaking the truth to us. It is, it is the hard truth. There are some aspects of this gospel, this good news, that, that may at first hearing sound like bad news. But we cannot be a follower, you told your disciples, unless we pick up the cross, that in, implement of death to self, and follow after you. But unless the seed falls into the ground, dies and is buried, uh, there can, there, no fruit can come from it. No growth. It was true with you at Calvary, and it's true with us every day. And so we come, just humbly right now, and if God has spoken to you as we come before him, uh, that, that you need to come out on the Lord's side, either for the first time or for another time. And I believe that God has brought you to this point in time to say, yes, yes, I am with him as he is with me. And I will gather, I will use my life to gather with him and not scatter. Just pray with me if that's your desire. Say, God, come and fill my heart the sense of your nearness as I lay my life down. You are my great God and you are my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, of all my sin, that which separates me from you. And fill me with your goodness. Fill me with all joy and peace in believing that I would abound in hope by the power of your Spirit. Do such a work in me, Lord, that from my mouth come the fruit of your praise and of declaration that you'd use me to testify of your true identity, that I would gather with you souls into your kingdom. That is my desire. Thank you for hearing and answering my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.